When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Marla Siegel, Marla Siegel, Associate Professor in the Department of Global Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Buffalo in Buffalo, New York, to talk about her new book, Kabbalah and Sex Magic, A Mythical Ritual Genealogy, out 2021 with Penn State University Press. Hello, Marla, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, and thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited. Uh, so how's Buffalo this morning? We had some snow. I What a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I was very excited. <laughs> it sounds wonderful. Um, you know, we don't have snow in Amsterdam. We just get more rain and more rain. Yeah, I guess I kind of forgot that. Yeah, well, you, you know, um, it's used to, used to snow, but not very often. I miss well, this it. this is our first snow. So it was very exciting. Yeah. Okay. Also in March and April, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Way less exciting then. Yeah, All yeah. right. Um, well, thanks for um, looking out in the snow and having a talk with me. Okay. So our standard first question is, how did you come to write this book? And my standard answer yeah. for almost everything I do is by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, it's it's actually really true <laughs> with almost everything. Um, so my last book was called um, Word and Image in Medieval Kabbalah. And that book was about Kabbalistic diagrams and what those diagrams could, and it was specifically about the book of creation or the Sefer Yetzirah. And It was about what those diagrams could teach us about how people used the book. Because people who are familiar with the Sefer Yetzirah will generally, they'll begin with hand wringing, right? Like they'll say, oh, I don't know what to do about this book. I don't know how to interpret it. It's it's really short. It's really cryptic. Like we don't really understand. Like there's just, it's, it's so terse. There's so much left out there are all these diagrams. Oh my gosh. And people had not yet written about them. And so I thought, okay, well, this is going to show me how, like just how people interacted with it, how they interpret it. This is going to be the key, right? And in some ways it was, but as I learned about these, you know, as I found these diagrams and as I translated them and analyzed them, I understood that they were very much about situating the human body in 
time and space. And the time part was the surprise, right? Because um, there was a lot of astrological, um, like there, there were there were a lot of astrological terms that were used, and even images. And so I thought, okay, so my next book, I want to talk about the human body. And I want to talk about where it's situated in time and space. And also like this idea that human beings are created in the divine image. I want to know how that translates to human embodiment. So I thought, well, I'm going to maybe take a walk and go visit the texts that are contiguous with the Sefer Yetzirah, like the Shir Koma was written in the same period and probably likely the same places, not place, but places, right? I thought, all right, well, let me, let me just look at that. And I thought, oh yeah, because this is all about God's body, right? It's all about God's body and it's about a human journey. Shir Koma, by the way, literally means the measurement of the body. And it's specifically the measurement of the divine body. And they give you those measurements, right? And, and of course they're astronomical and they're supposed to be incomprehensible, but they're very proportionate to the human body. So I thought, okay, I'm on, I'm in the right place. Like we've got we've got measurements, we've got the human body, we've got the divine body that's analogous. And then I noticed something, right? I noticed that when we were talking about like the text is actually centered on the divine genitalia, right? Like you know, it goes from like head to loins and toe to loins and loins to head and loins to toe. That's how the descriptions go. And I thought, that's a little odd. So what's happening with these loins here, you know? And and then I realized, okay, well, they are actually giving the measurements of the divine, you know, like the divine phallus. And, and then I thought, but what's that cloud doing over it? Or what's the rainbow doing here? Why is there a rainbow over God's penis. And then I thought, okay, why does the rainbow have folds? And I'm like, oh. <laughs> and this is this is a description of intra-divine sexuality happening at the center of the cosmos on the divine throne. And I thought, all right, things are a little different than I thought. And this book about embodiment really has to be a book about the power of divine sexuality. And then I thought, but wait, there's a human component. I've seen it. I've seen it in the Zohar. I've seen it in Moshe Cordovero's 16th century works. I'm like, okay, what's what's the story? What's the, what's the tra- trajectory from this vision of God having sex with God's self on the divine throne and human beings trying to replicate that? So that is the story of how the book was imagined like totally by mistake sure yeah i mean like there's that's a level of stumbling into like because i don't know how you sort that out and you don't write a book about it like there's that you're like well clearly we've got to write this book i mean i i think though how did you come to kabbalah like what oh my gosh that was also by mistake and i'm not joking um yeah i'm not joking at all so i wrote a dissertation on religious conversion in medieval romance. That's what I wrote about. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it kind of goes back. Well, I'm going to be very honest here. When I was in high school, I was grounded a great deal. Um, and the only thing that I was allowed to do when I was grounded 
was to go to Jewish youth group meetings. And when I was at one of these meetings, there was somebody advertising for a very well-funded first-year college experience in Israel. I said, I had only one question. Um, How far is that from here? (laughs) And they said, 5,000 miles. I said, all right, I'm going, right? Because I'm tired. Yeah. Um, And I did. But when we were there, they asked us, as students, they asked us to try to kind of give back a little because it was so well-funded, do some community service. So for my community service, I taught Hebrew school. I taught it all the way through grad school. And there was one group of students who I taught from age 13 to 16 while I was writing my dissertation. And this was the time when Madonna was in the news for her red string in the Kabbalah Center. And they said, Marla, Marla, what's Kabbalah? And I said, huh, I have really no idea. (laughs) And anyway, we decided to learn it together. And when we did, it really resonated with me because all my training in literary theory it it felt like I had been studying it precisely to apply it to the Kabbalistic text that I was teaching with these teenagers. And so I finished my dissertation and I went on the job market and I put on my CV that I had taught this class. And honestly, it was the only thing that anybody cared about. And so there I was, I was in the field, whether I wanted to or not. So it was a very long story. Please feel free to cut it out. <laughs> I love it. Best Hebrew school teacher ever. No question. I mean, there's some, that's wonderful. I have Hebrew school teaching and Madonna. It's so much more than I could have hoped for. Yeah. That's... It was way more than I could have even imagined. <laughs> like, I just had no idea. You're clearly but... stuck, right? Like you've been <sighs> at it for a while. This is clearly your great love. Well, I loved it. Like, I, I just felt like everything that I'd ever studied really prepared me to look at these texts. Like, yeah. And and so I, I was just so happy when people were interested in me doing the thing that I fell into. So, yes. Wonderful. Uh, that is, that's delightful. And, you know, pretty rare. So good news. Um, so, yeah, the other thing then, um, the title of this book, you know, Kabbalah and Sex Magic. What what's sex magic? Oh, that's a great question. Um, there there are lots of different definitions of sex magic, and mine is really specific. Um, so, I am really uninterested in anything that is dark or demonic in terms of sex magic. And it's real. It's really there. But I'm not interested in it. And I don't want to talk about it. Okay. I mean, I could talk about it with you, but I'm not like, that's not my area. Um, I am interested in, so in the Hebrew Bible, there are lots of different creation narratives, right? So there's Genesis 1, there's Genesis 2, there's, there's a whole sequence in the book of Job, there, there's, there's stuff in Jeremiah. It, it is really scattered through, there's Genesis 5, right, which recapitulates it. There, there's so many different narratives, but the one in Job suggests that there exists a divine womb, and Genesis 1 kind of streamlines a lot of ancient Near Eastern mythologies 
of creation by means of divine sexual reproduction. And so this was not lost on the writers, the readers, and the commentators on the Bible from, from a very early period. And so I was really interested in how human beings imagined human sexuality as an aspect of human creation in the divine image, as imitation of the divine, and as a way to participate in divine power. And so that's how I imagine sex magic. So sex magic is human beings using sexuality to access and to employ divine power. So it's ritual imitation for that for that purpose. Right. So we're talking about myth and ritual and uh, kind of in how they work together. Yeah. And, and, and in religious studies, that's a live issue. Um, it, it's really a live issue because, you know, a lot of people, they take a side on this, even though I think most of us would agree that both are true. Um, some people say that rituals enact myth. And some people say that myths explain rituals. So it's a question, it's the the myth ritual omelet question, right? So, <laughs> so, but obviously both are true. Like rituals interpret myths, but in the process they re-mythologize. And myths can also exist as ritual commentary. And in the process they generate new rituals. Um, so these really do work together. Sure. Yeah. yeah, kind of, and mutually reinforcing and mutually developing this dialectic of uh, performance, really. Yeah. yeah, because in the end, like, really, the qu- the question is, how do religions stay alive? Also, how do we generate new culture? Like, what's actually new? Right? We don't really take sides on it. We don't say there is no, there's nothing new under the sun. Some people do, but I don't. Right? Like, um, and at the same time, we don't claim that we have done it entirely on our own. And so, so this question of cultural generativity is very, very. I don't know. It's really live to me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, I think that's an, a really important kind of modern question. I don't. I don't think there's any point when we're not asking that, what are, where are we coming from and how, how are we getting here? What's next? These are all the same kind of questions. <clears throat> okay. So you're looking at a lot of literary texts, right? So you're, you're looking at a lot of kind of prescriptive lit, right? I don't know if I want to call it prescriptive literature. Like you're looking at a lot of literary texts, a lot of, um, of divine kind of in, divinely inspired texts. Oh, that's such a good question. Finish it. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, and then you've got, because oh, I'm interested, the, the bigger question here is about your sources, what you're using. Um, but I'm I'm having trouble kind of categorizing them. Are these, are, are they telling me how to worship? Are they describing, are they telling me what the world is? Are they telling me how to act? Like what, where do they come, and where do they come from actually? Because I'm having trouble figuring out what's the oldest and who the authors plural are as well. Yeah, those are all, in in my opinion, those are all the right impossible questions. (laughs) I like to think that's a specialty. I'm working on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so, first of all, it depends on which text you're talking about. Okay. Um, I would say most of these fall under the category of commentarial literature, except for the medical works, right? 
but the medical works, they, they, they share a lot with the commentarial literature. And in fact, they, they lift large, large sections of it and incorporate them. So the sheer coma, if we're going to just start with that, right? Yeah, like, like, I think that, I mean, I think that's a good way to go. Let's start with the sheer coma. Tell us what this book is. What it, let's, let's go at it. Tell us about this book. I think it's commentarial literature. Okay. I think it's commentary. It's it's a common. It's a combination of commentarial literature and um, experiential literature, both, right? And I think many of these texts do that. So, uh, the Shir Kama is definitely a commentary on the Song of Songs. Okay, um, it is also part of the genre of. And the song of songs, you know, it's it's the you know it's the it's most people are familiar with it, but they're not familiar with exactly how juicy it is, and how it is in fact a love poem, right? And it's a it's it's a series of love poems, an exchange between two lovers. So there's this feeling of mutuality and a, and an emphasis on the feminine voice, right? And what happens to it later is ever so many things. Like some people say, oh, it's actually about, you know, it's about two married, it's about a married couple instead of the unmarried lovers that appear in it, right? And it's about the love between the human being and God or the human being and Jesus. And they utterly sanitize her, you know, they veil her, they, you know, they, they, they get rid of her sensuality. They make her modest, which she is so not, right? But in Jewish sources, often, like Rabbi Akiva, beginning in the first century of the Common Era, like he understands the text as treating human eroticism as a model for the relationship between human and divine. So it's not like, oh, the eroticism doesn't happen between people. It does. It does. Right. But that feeling, that that embodied affect is a model for how you're meant to relate to the divine. And so the Sharkoma is picking up on that eroticism and it's transferring it not only to the intra-divine relationship, but it's also imagining it from a human, the perspective of a human observer who ascends to the heavens to witness this, right? There's such an influence, like, and there's such an emphasis on beauty, on divine beauty, just like there is in the Song of Songs. And also that human beings witness this act of copulation as, like, intra-divine copulation as part of the celestial prayer service, right? So this this is all in the service of answering your, your question, what is this? So on the one hand, it's a commentary on the Shir Koma. On the other, I think it's also a companion piece to the Sefer Yitzhira, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But it's also an extension of this very widespread speculative literature um, about, like that, that narrates a human ascent to the divine realm to witness this prayer service, like to, to witness this intro, like this, this awesome celestial prayer service where God may or may not be copulating with God's self, right? So <laughs> like they don't, they don't, they don't all emphasize that, but this one does. Right. And then, and then it's a companion piece to the, to the Sefer Yitzhira, which is the book of creation, which it, and it too is set in this cosmology that's described in 
the um, the Merkava or the Maase Bereshit literature. So this literature of of it's actually descent up to the divine chariot. So that's some piece of what it is. Yeah, I also think. I mean, it also borrows some stuff from the Talmud, like it, like which is the 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 it's a Jewish legal and narrative text where it takes the characters that apply that appear in the Talmud and it makes them the storytellers of this experiential narrative. So and it's also commentary on the Moses stories. Like so so there's a there's a lot there's a lot of mythological synthesis and reimagination that's happening and I think that's really the thing to walk away with. Plus the other thing to walk away with is that it is a way to situate and give meaning to and to model human experience. So you like you have this trans experience and you experience the descent to the divine chariot and you see the celestial prayer service. However you get there, you have this experience, right? But when you do it, you have the models that came before to imagine it. And you can use pre-existing myths to narrate that experience. And in the process, you change both your experience and you change the myths. Okay. Absolutely. Get this. As a source also, it ref- it's got to reflect its milieu, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, of, and where, what is that milieu? That's like, another good we- question. <laughs> like no one agrees, but I would say, I would agree with everybody, which is that it was probably both um, Palestinian and Babylonian. And it's probably fourth to sixth century because it just makes sense because it is, it, it's, it, it is, I think it's contemporaneous with the Sefer Yitzhak, which I feel very strongly that it is fourth to sixth century. Um, and by, I mean, feel very strongly. I mean, that's what I got from my manuscript research. <laughs> like, very strong. It's, yep. like it, it's, it's not a hunch. <laughs> like, <laughs> right, yeah, you know, I touched it and I got these vibes. That is not what's happening. Well, I meditated. I meditated on it. <laughs> so, no. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so it's, I, so it's probably a combination because, all right, so it's got the, the Babylonian Talmud, parts of it in it or those characters that show up in there it's also got parts like the same characters of course show up in the palestinian talmud and it really draws on this literature that comes from both places like the 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 literature of the divine chariot so that's what i think Okay. And it reflects a, an ongoing conversation between a, a lot of people in a lot of places and a religious, it's, it's a, it's a reflection of, and part of an ongoing conversation about the divine and the nature of the divine. Absolutely. And I think people really, I guess the way I like to think about this, like if you walk into a classroom and you say to your students, okay, tell me how the world came to be. They're going to tell you 10 different things. They're going to say, oh, well, Genesis 1. They're going to say, oh, well. I mean, they won't say Genesis 1, but they'll tell you the story of it. They'll say, oh, well, Big Bang. They'll say, oh, well, Genesis 2. And, 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 and then if you ask them, 
which one of these is right? Can more than one of these be right? They'll say, yeah, well, this one tells the story this way, the scientific way, and that's really important. But this one talks about how people might have imagined it, and that's really important. So maybe they're all true. I, I think that is really important for us to remember when we think about how people in the ancient and medieval worlds imagined the cosmos. Um, and I, and so this is a question about the milieu. And so for the milieu, I would like to say that all these different cosmologies existed as options in, in people's cultures and in their minds and that they interacted with each other and that when people produce texts like this, they are actually they are articulating a model of their interaction. Did I answer your question? You did, and I mean, and asked a few more for sure. Um, okay, well, yeah, yeah. That was, yeah. That was really good. But I, I'm thinking too about then, like this reminder. I I feel like I just got a reminder that. Um, people in history were no less complex than modern people. And they're, you know, this very important, like, understanding of these are interpretations and ways to understand our world that are not mutually exclusive, even if they may appear to be on the surface. Right, exactly. Because in our minds, they're just not. Like, no, they're we, not. We have them all. They, they shape our experience. Mm-hmm. And like, and all are then equally true. So I don't know if they're equally true, but, the, no. but they, each has a purpose, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. I'm good with that. Yeah, yeah. That's probably a better, uh, better kind of, uh, that makes more sense. Um, they each have a purpose and they, they serve, they, they, they serve us or they serve the person who's using them at some point. Right. So, I mean, who's, who is involved in this discourse? Is this a learned discourse? Is this going to happen? Is how, where, who's this for? That's another wonderful question. Um, Moshe Edel has this theory that Kabbalists, or like even Jewish mystics were secondary elites. So they, and I'm not sure how far back it goes because he's really talking about people in the period of the Zohar, which would have been about the 11th to the 15th centuries, right? Because our, our conception of how and when the Zohar appeared has been enriched by scholars such as um, Ronit Miroz, um, who, like, who's done really serious manuscript dating the different strata. But um, who's it for? Maybe they're secondary elites. Maybe they're people who are literate um, and who are really they who really have the time to try to cultivate these experiences but maybe then again if you look at the liturgy that's in it it's the daily liturgy so maybe it's for everybody who's saying the liturgy right because it says whoever like the the the, the shirkoma concludes by saying whoever memorizes this is assured of a place in the world to come so maybe it's for everybody you know, and, and these texts, although they are written, the manuscripts are quite late. Um, you know, you don't start to see them until about the 12th or, you know, the 12th or even 13th century, the manuscripts. And earlier ones are very rare just because they are anyway. Like, but these texts bear the marks of oral texts just in terms of their, um, like their generic forms, like the Sefer Yitzira for sure is in my opinion, it's a ring composition and that's an oral form. And, and you also see 
Um, you also see elements of the ring composition in the shear coma, although it's much less pronounced. So, but, but the thing is, the people are directed to memorize it. So maybe it's for secondary elite. Maybe it's for people who have time to sit around and meditate. Maybe it's part of the prayer service and it's for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ring composition. What is, what does this mean? A ring composition is, it's a comp, like it is an oral form. It is most common in the ancient world and all the way up through the middle ages. It, it starts to become less common with the, the entrenchment of a literate culture as opposed to an oral one. Um, it be, it's, it's a composition that ends where it begins, right? So if, if you're going to p- map it out with letters, so you're beginning, you have an intro, which kind of includes all the elements that are going to be expanded throughout. So, so you have the intro, then you have A, okay? So A would be, I don't know, first there was, if, you, if you're going to look at Genesis 1, like A would be like in the beginning, you know, like God separated light from light from darkness, right? So you're starting with these elements of light and darkness. Then you're going to go to like water and land. And then, so eventually you get go through the narrative until you get to the part that mirrors A, right? So the center of the nar- narrative mirrors the introduction and the, and, and it re and it sort of recapitulates the first element and then it goes back. So if you have five elements, then six is right there in the middle. You go back to five. So you go back to five, which expands some element of five on the other side of the ring until you're back to the beginning. Right. And that's easier. Yep. That makes sense. I'm seeing a block and, um, and that makes it easier to remember and, Right. And there's some kind of for the for both easier to remember for the speaker and easier to understand and pin for the listener as well. Right. Yeah. And also you're on a journey like you go away from home and you go back, you know, or like you start home, you go away, 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 away. And then you start threading your way back and then you've come home and there's this beautiful sense of a journey, a completed journey. OK. Awesome. Yeah. OK. So. Uh, um. Who was it for? Yeah, who was it for? Was it for? Was it for? Yeah. yeah, and um, so you said um, one of the op- opportunity, one of the op- answers for who is this for was people who have uh, time for these experiences. Yeah. What are these experiences? What are they experiencing? Well, that's a great question. So, um, some of the Merkava literature actually instructs you on what you're supposed to do. And again, the, the Merkava is the divine chariot. So, um, and they outline different techniques. So one of the techniques is that you are to make sure that you are completely ritually pure. Actually, so this this always cracks me up, right? So, so the first thing that you're supposed to do is you're supposed to be morally pure. And there's this long list of moral, um, like of moral requirements, including never having gossiped about anybody. And then one of the speakers or, or responds, come on, no one can do that. It's impossible. Like they're like, okay, we were with, we were with you with the sexual purity. We were, were with you with the like doing good deeds, but come on, everybody gossips. We can't, like we can't. Right. I, I mean, we're assuming, I'm assuming that because that's the last item on the list and it, it seems like it's the, the breaking point. Right. Um, 
But okay, well, so if you can't do that, then just make sure that you're ritually pure. So like spend a day eating bread and water and of course, stay away from any women, right? Because you can't be sexually polluted. And then once you've just had bread that you've kneaded with your own hands and water that you've drunk for 24 hours, then you, and I think it's 24 hours, but I could be wrong. Um, then you put your head between your knees and essentially you do these breathing exercises, which sound a lot like hyperventilation. And so then you put yourself in this state where you can imaginatively travel to the celestial realms. And of course, there are scholarly debates on whether people did it like they imaginatively went there or whether it imaginatively came to them or whether their bodies were actually there, right? And different accounts tend to narrate different kinds of experiences, like of, of all those sorts. So I guess a person who could do this would be the person who had the time to like take a day to usually himself, right? Right. Like take a day, clarify. And if you're going to take all that time, then you probably are going to want to come back and talk about it. And we're going to make sure you have the time to do this. We're going to make sure there's somebody in our community who has that kind of time. We're going to want them to tell us about how it went, right? Yeah, so. Or you, often these people were part of circles who developed these practices and told each other about them, right? So so I always imagine it as more like a, a mystical circle or a study circle kind of experience, but that may just be me projecting back. Or it may be that some of the same names come up all the time, right? So, yeah. So at least at least there are some circles that are like clearly discernible, right? Yeah. All right. Um, okay, so... <clears throat> So we have this understanding um, that is kind of what we would call it the late antique period. We put it in the late, in, in what historians would call the late antique period. Um, and this go, this travels though, right? It's something that we continue to have. So can you tell us about the way this is understood and experienced like this under this text or this kind of more writ large, like sex magic more generally, what, I mean, what you're talking about was experienced and understood in the kind of uh, medieval period. How does this travel? Yeah. So, so really important things happen in the texts that describe the rituals. What people were doing in real life, I have no idea. But um, what happens is that oh, several things happen. Um, first, in the in late antiquity, you don't really have a clearly articulated doctrine of intra-divine sexuality and its role in the creation of the universe. Like you, you have lots of different narratives that assume that and even that explore that. But what you don't have is the, the emergent Kabbalistic cosmology which kind of organizes and like codifies would be way too strong a word, but it kind of imagines several characters that remain consistent and narrative stages that more or less remain consistent, but it tells the story in lots of different ways, right? So what you, 
what you see from the movement from late antiquity to the medieval period is this elaboration of creation of the cosmos and its sustenance by means of intra-divine sexual reproduction. And you have that in the doctrine of the spherot, often 10, sometimes more. Okay. And so that story is the story of how, of how God, it, it's like, it's almost like um, an elaboration of the Neoplatonic doctrine of divine overflow or, or the, the model of divine overflow. Right. So there's this idea that God was perfect and one and all alone and God contemplated God's, God's self and overflowed. Right. And then created the next almost into containers for God's self, but it's how the one it's, that's the story of how the one becomes the many, right? So as God overflows, God differentiates different parts of the divine existence. And then eventually those culminate in the forms that are imposed on a preexistent matter, the highly, right? So some of these, some aspects of the Kabbalistic cosmology, they, they, kind of describe a divine overflow into aspects, each of which is an important part of the divine personality. And these aspects have names, they have characters, they're gendered, and they they have relationships with each other that are dynamic and they're changing all the time. Okay. But, but, but the main thing is that God first overflows into Keter, which is the first um, divine emanation, right? And then um, there's Chokhmah, so Keter's crown, right? The divine crown. So there's this, even now it's this idea it's directly connected to the divine body. And there's a head and a crown, right? And then there's um, there's Chokhmah, which is divine wisdom, and which is so Keter is bigendered. Chokhmah is male. And then Bina is understanding, and she's female. And so the idea is that Keter emanates into these two like gendered aspects, which then have sex with each other and generate the rest of the seven spherot. And they, and there's a couple in there, Tif Eret, which is beauty, right? Commentary on the Song of Songs again. Um, and then Shahinah, um, which, or Malchut, which is royalty, right? Um, those two couple, and they give birth to the rest of the cosmos, okay? So you, what you do is you, you get this, set of narratives that really are focused on the generation and the sustenance of the cosmos by means of divine sexual reproduction. That's really important. You start seeing that really in the 10th and 12th centuries. Like, I mean, again, but the, the, some people would say that it's later, but it depends on a whole bunch of technical things that I will not bog you down in right now. Um, so, so there's that, Right. And then the other thing is, as this occurs, you get people, you have a transition from spectatorship to participation, right? Why? Well, partly it has to do with the doctrine of the spherot, because, because you literally see divine, like aspects of the divine having sex with each other, right? There, there is there emerges a theology that people can affect whether they get to do that or not. So the idea is that if human beings sin, then Shekhinah, Tiferet's partner, is in exile. She's separated from her husband and she can't have sex with him and the blessings stop, right? 
But if people do good things, they can, you know, they can hook them up. Like they can, they can get um, Shekhinah back with Tiferet and then they, they, they get to, you know, they get to be together and then we have blessings. Right. And so then you get this idea that, well, one of the ways that people can make this happen is by pre-enacting it. So that, that's like, that's kind of a ritual principle. Like some people say that human beings kind of reenact like Eliada, for example, he said that human beings reenact the, the um, cosmogony, like the beginning of, you know, like the beginning of the creation story. But in my work, I have found they don't just reenact it, they pre-enact it. They want to make it happen again. So if you want something to happen up there, you do it down here and then, oh, God will copy you. So that principle gets enacted in early forms of sacred sexuality and sex magic in the Jewish tradition. Of course, people were practicing sacred sexuality all over the world at this time. So this is just this one iteration of it or, or, or this set of iterations of it. Okay. Um, all right. So we have like a, we have a late antique understanding. We have this development into the middle ages. What happens after? Like, where are we going? What's going to happen? Yeah. Where are we now? Um, um, people do it. Okay. So, so I think the early modern period is really quite important because Moshe Cordovero he goes full circle. Like he has a commentary on the Shir Koma where he is reimagining the liturgy as a Shir Koma. Like, and he is imagining that as an act of sacred sexuality. Plus he, he so, so there are, there are rituals of sacred sexuality that are really spelled out in the Zohar, which again is probably 11th to 15th century, but the sections I'm looking at are probably 13th, right? So there's there's a ritual for sacred sexuality actually spelled out in the Zohar. And Moshe Cordovero, who lived in 16th century Sfat, which was Ottoman, Ottoman Palestine, um, he really like expands it. Like he, he really develops lots of different phases for the ritual. And he has a lot to say about what the participants should think and feel and imagine and say even, or the kinds of things they should say. And so once you're into the early modern period, then you actually see Cordovero's material getting incorporated into Orthodox Jewish practice. And Orthodox, again, it's a modern term, but like you get to see it incorporated into Hasidic sources, which come in the 18th century, right? So, so there's that stream of people who practice sacred sexuality within Judaism. And then, of course, we have um, like modern esotericism, which synthesizes different traditions. And so we see Kabbalistic traditions getting mixed with whatever makes most sense to people at the moment. Um, And then we also see sacred sexuality that is really not based, well, often the ones they combine combine it with are are Hindu or Hindu-based, right? And so... 
so modern practitioners of sacred sexuality often combine like the Jewish tradition with Hindu traditions with a lot of psychotherapeutic discourse, right? Because what happens is that sacred sexuality doesn't become like it, it used to be, well, I shouldn't say it was and it is, but often sacred sexuality was focused on a cosmic process, right? So the point was to bring together Shekinah and Tiferet so that the world could be blessed. As we move into um, early modernity and modernity, we see some of these processes reimagined socially. So instead of bringing down blessings, and and I'm going to take a step away from sacred sexuality for a minute. So like, for example, if you're looking at the Sefer Yetzirah, the book of creation, and the rituals that were developed around it, um, you see that they're actually focused on making a golem, right? And like that is what that's what people did, but in or, or or that's how they imagined it, right? And in the early sources, the medieval sources, the golem, the creation of the golem was a process of pre-enacting the redemption, because. When you raise the golem, you're pre-enacting the raising of the dead. And so, so yeah. And and there like and also there, there's all this material in it about the constellations and how they move, like how the Pleiades are trying to catch their sister, and Ursa's looking for her child. And so that's what makes the, the constellations move, and that's what makes time go, right? So the idea is that when you make the golem, you're gonna you're gonna pre-enact the resurrection of the dead, and you're gonna stop time, right? And you're you're bringing in the messianic period. What happens in the early modern period is that ritual becomes social. So instead of saving everybody, you're saving the Jewish community from, you know, from the blood libel, right? And the same thing happens to other rituals. So whereas they were meant, they, they were, they might have had a social component, but what seems dominant is the cosmic component. You've got the r- rituals becoming social. And then as psychotherapeutic discourse um, emerges in really the 19th and 20th century, you see some of the sex magic rituals and even Kabbalistic rituals becoming about what's happening inside the self, like achieving a balance in the self, and also about achieving harmonious relationships with the people around you, and also about saving particular communities. And so the same thing happens to sex magic. It it, it gets joined with psychotherapeutic discourse to remedy major social ills that that its practitioners imagine like shame around the body or like gender imbalance or or shaming about sexuality so it's a redemption narrative for the self for the psyche for the for the relationships for the community so that's what happens now i think i mean i've done i've actually done more interviews since i completed the book and it's yeah, people are very much, and, and and also they're very they're in a deep relationship to capitalism and its ills, especially with the commodification of the body, right? And and the idea that like somehow you've lost touch 
with the embodied connection to the cosmos. So contemporary practitioners are very much focused on that too, like kind of centering themselves in the body as like remedying harmful discourses that come to bear on it. Sure. And like practices too. Yeah. And this, I can see this marrying with concepts of modernity and what we've lost and yeah yeah i mean there's there's always a nostalgia nostalgia is critical you know sure well and not necessarily unhealthy so i'm seeing some i'm seeing a a tradition that really develops and changes right to to serve the concerns like the the external concerns but then also provides um do i want to say a continuity like right with this a long lasting tradition this is a tradition it's been mine forever I can I can harken back to a better time, like, right? I mean, it's interesting because it really the, the the notion of continuity really depends on where you're coming from, right? Um, so the Jewish tradition is very much a cumulative tradition, and and in, in some ways, this is an, an answer to your earlier question, like, you know, kind of what is this, right? So so the idea is that it's it's a tradition that builds on all the layers that came before it, but there's this idea that each individual is called upon, like literally, like it's, it's, it's a duty to re to to like, to like to add their own interpretation. Right. Because, you know, the, like even the mystical texts, they have these, especially the Sefer Bahir, um, they liken the Torah to the sea. Right. They say, oh, the, the Torah is like the sea. There's no end to it, right? And and so there's, there's this idea that like turn it and turn it for everything is in it. That that comes from, um, like that's a very that's a late antique text that that is about the the inter- interpretation of Torah. So the idea is that it's the duty of each generation to bring more out, to take more out, right? And so. There is a sense of continuity, but there's also a sense of innovation and innovation is not frowned upon. Like, so, so there's this idea, like it's called a chidush. Oh, it's a chidush. You, 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 it's a, it, so it, 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 a chidush is like a new interpretation that's understood to be very exciting that nobody else found before you. So on the one hand, it's continuous. And on the other, it is, it is alive and dynamic and, and motivated by innovations that are understood to at the same time, to be based in those texts. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's wonderful. It really helps. And it's, I, I just, I want to think about this forever and I have so many more questions, but it is, it's, we've been, we've gone for so long. I have taken so much of your time that I can't, I, we cannot talk about embodiment anymore, which I really wanted to talk about in the tradition, how this fits into an intellectual tradition. So we'll just, we'll cut all that off and listeners, you'll have to read the book. Um, could be worse. Could it's be worse. Now. It's, it's in paperback. Yeah, um, it could be worse. It's a great book. It's really interesting. Um, and it's it's um, these are really complex concepts that you know, really kind of flow. So, you, readers, listeners, don't don't be nervous. So, I have just the one more question, Marla. Mm. What's next? What are you working on? Oh, um, I just finished. A, a revisions on an article on embryology. It's it's on how it's on the history of embryology and how 
late antique embryologies get ritualized in religious practice. And it's about the theologies that are attached to it. And specifically, it's what's interesting about it is that we were just talking earlier about these myths of creation by means of divine sexual reproduction. But late antique Jewish embryologies have the divine deeply involved in reproduction as, as a third partner. And over time, God is increasingly maternalized. And as that happens, women get more power over, um, well, they, as a, they, they get more power over ritual, right? Because as time passes, women's literacy increases. And also as time passes, like these are often prayers for pregnancy. So as time passes, women start getting their own prayer books for like women's things, right? And so they incorporate these embryologies that maternalize the divine into prayer books and they, they essentially give themselves magical power. So this is called God's magical womb, and it's a history of embryology and power. So that's an article that I, I hope I just finished. Oh, I really hope I did. And I'm turning that into my next book. That's fantastic. Um, similar source material? Um, I'm focusing a lot more on prayers. I'm f- so so some of the stuff comes from the Talmud. I'm focusing on prayers from the late antique period. So like from the third to the ninth centuries, because in my opinion, these are like, these are putim. So they're, they're, they're written by, it's before the liturgy standardized. So they're written as supplements to the liturgy and they're in, they're a hotbed of cultural creativity. So from there and then into the Jewish mystical sources that then incorporate some of those images that were developed in the putim. And then from there to women's prayers. That's that sounds like it must be an incredible amount of fun, and I'm going to enjoy reading it. Thank you. Uh, it's going to be a while. Where am I going? I got time. All right, um, Marla, thank you so much for joining me. It has been a great time. Um, readers, I really enjoyed it. So I really appreciate it. I appreciate the time that you took to learn about my work. I'm very honored by it. Thanks. This, um, as I said, it's a stretch. This is farther than I go. And I, uh, you know, it's farther than I usually go. And I'm so glad I took the time with it, which took, it did take a minute. I will admit. Um, I'm, I'm always like, oh, listeners buy the book. You'll love it. You will love it, but don't, it's not as easy as some of the things I read, but it was very much worth the effort. Um, Kabbalah and Sex Magic, a Mythical Ritual Genealogy from Penn State University Press. Go to our website and you can click on the link, listeners. And uh, Marla, we'll talk for the next one, all right? Yes, thank you so much. Take care. It was really a pleasure to talk with you.